One, two, three, vamos! Red Cloaks Radio is a production of the Boston Red Cloaks. Hi, this is Jesse with Red Cloaks Radio. Delighted to be here on November 16th with my co-host. Martha from Boston Red Cloaks. Karen from Boston Red Cloaks. And we've also got Laura here. Hey, Laura. Hi. Karen, tell us about today's amazing guest. Yes, our amazing guest is the woman formerly known as the executive director of NARAL Boston, and who is now known as the executive director of Reproductive Equity Now. It is our pleasure. There is so much we want to ask and hear and learn. Welcome. Wow. <laughs> Thank you so much for that kind introduction. I feel like Prince now. Um, I appreciate <laughs> formerly known as. Yeah. I'm delighted to be here. <laughs> First thing we want to do, Becca, is even though it's hard on Zoom, we all want to give you a round of applause and congratulations on this amazing new chapter. Yay! Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. We have to start in with the fact that we've worked together during the Roe Act passage, and we will talk about that. But because it's hot off the news information, we would love to know the thing you're most excited about with a new exciting name and reproductive equity. We need it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I am so proud to have kind of relaunched uh, an organization that you all have known um, in the Massachusetts area for almost 50 years. So. Um, with our new name, I think we're making very clear that we think access to reproductive health care is a deeply intersectional fight. Um, you cannot have access to the full spectrum of reproductive health care if you are um, being discriminated against in any form. So that means um, your race, your ethnicity, your income, your gender, your age, your immigration status, your ability, your sexual orientation, um, or your religion. And, you know, we really are centering reproductive justice, and we are, of course, focusing on eliminating barriers to safe legal abortion care. Um, but we're being really clear that you know, it's not just about access to abortion. It's about access to the full spectrum of reproductive health care. It's about being able to vote for a candidate who supports reproductive equity. It's about having child care if you decide to start a family. So we're, we're really taking a holistic look at our mission and um, really trying to live our values with this relaunch. We can talk about some of the amazing successes that you personally, while leading the helm in Massachusetts, have been able to help achieve. And that does include legislation that is about expanded access for abortion, but it's also related to childcare. It's also thinking about bringing our laws up to date. And so not everyone may be aware of that. I thought it might be good for people to hear just a brief highlight of a couple of the successes that you've helped bring forward here in the Commonwealth. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm really proud of our track record as an organization and, and also really excited about where we're going. Um, I think, you know, the one of the laws that I'm most proud of is the access bill, which um, was passed in November of 2017, actually signed into law on my birthday. So I will always remember that day, um, which guarantees copay free contraceptive coverage here in Massachusetts and also um, allows folks to get a 12 month supply of oral contraceptives, which can be a real game changer in terms of preventing unintended pregnancies. Um, we also expanded access uh, to non-discrimination policies for pregnant workers. 
we protected uh, privacy for um, people who are insured to make sure that in their explanation of benefits, there's no um, unintentional disclosure of um, private health care that they don't want the policyholder to know about. Um, we repealed a criminal abortion ban that had been in Massachusetts law for um, well over 100 years. Um, and of course, we had our um, crowning achievement with the Roe Act. So um, I'm really proud of, of kind of the, the work that we've done over the last five years, but also feel like we're just getting started. Like Massachusetts is really poised to lead, and I want us to do that wholeheartedly and, and really take a look at the whole region and be really thoughtful about um, how we can have an impact in this region. If you can take us back to the Roe Act, can you tell us about what took you first on these uh, major legislation? In October of 2018, um, I was listening to the testimony of Dr. Blasey Ford um, in front of um, the Senate Judiciary Committee. And honestly, I was just sitting in front of my computer and weeping, um, feeling like she could not have been stronger and yet the, you know, we were going to see now Justice Kavanaugh elevated to the high court. And I was so angry. I don't, I, I can't recall a time in my professional life when I've been angrier than that. And, uh, you know, the ACLU and Planned Parenthood and then NARAL for Choice Massachusetts, now Reproductive Equity Now, had been talking about the upcoming legislative session. And with the um, ascension of Justice Kavanaugh to the high court, we thought, you know, this is the this is the harbinger. This is this is the beginning of the end for access to um, abortion. You know, not that access had been good before, but it, I guess I, sh I should rephrase that to say it was the beginning of the end for the right to privacy. Um, and we felt like it was time to take a big swing. It was time to really not go piecemeal, but to look at the entire code and make dramatic changes that would impact the lives of people. And um, it, it, you know, I, it's funny, it just, it really started from anger. It just started from a deep, deep well of fury about what I believe to be coming and unfortunately um, was right about what's coming from the court. So do you think that the, uh, the laws affecting the other states like the ones in Texas and down south, would they affect the laws that have been passed now in Massachusetts. Uh, and by that, I mean, can the laws change drastically as they did in Texas? If Roe falls or is gutted, access to abortion care will still be protected here in Massachusetts. That is clear. We are not among the roughly 24 states that will you know, immediately or almost immediately move to restrict access to abortion such that it's either not available at all or so difficult to get that you can't actually access care. Um, I, I do not believe that our legislature will be um, taken over by the kind of right-wing anti-abortion um, fanatics that are in the Texas legislature who, you know, want to control reproduction and, you know, control what families look like. I think we are, we are situated differently. But what we do know about what's happening in Texas is that the states around Texas are seeing a huge influx of patients from the state of Texas, and it's difficult to get appointments in those states. And in fact, I spoke to a 
provider um, here in Massachusetts last week who saw a patient from Texas. We can expect to get medically complex cases um, here in Massachusetts. And if you live in Texas and you have family in Massachusetts, then Massachusetts is an obvious place where you would come to because you'd have support here or any state, you know, like you'd go to California if you have family there and it's easier to get access to care. But the ripple effect from Texas is being felt already. And, and the ripple effect from essentially half the country potentially outlying abortion access will be profound. It will have a profound impact on the ability for people just to simply get appointments. I mean, the demand will increase astronomically. So do you think that, the, do you predict that that's gonna have uh, big changes on what we see here in Massachusetts? I'm nervous about New Hampshire. I mean, I don't know the New Hampshire legislature as well as I know the Massachusetts legislature, so I don't want to get out over my skis, but they did recently recently pass um, two very restrictive um, anti-abortion laws, and one of those laws has a criminal penalty in it for abortion providers. That should make us all very nervous, very, very nervous. And I think if there is a signal from the court that states can act quickly to restrict access to abortion. We might see it from our neighbor to the north. It's a, it's a big reason why we are taking a hard look as, as an organization um, at becoming regional and really focusing our work in all of New England. Um, I, I'm nervous. I'm very nervous about New Hampshire. Yeah. I do want to just step back to the Supreme Court issue because I know it feels far-fetched but after the last five years, things that seem far-fetched don't seem as far-fetched anymore. And that is that the Supreme Court could, with this composition, they could recognize fetal personhood. And I think even in Massachusetts, I feel like it's a, it's a potential mistake to not recognize that even though we have done our best to really lift up our state laws, we can't sit back and do nothing because we are in fact a country that is connected. So I really like what you're saying about regional recognition. That's really interesting. And for people who are listening, everyone defines New England a little differently. So I'm curious which states you're thinking about in terms of collaborating. Oh man, as the daughter of an English teacher who's like very rigid, I think of New England as six states, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine. Um, and Maine. And I do think you're right, Jesse, that I don't think that the I would be surprised if the court made any moves to recognize fetal personhood um, in this session. I am nervous about that. Um, you know, the, the anti-abortion, I, I, I read this article, this op-ed by Ron Klain, I can't remember when he wrote it, maybe 2017, and he said, and I thought it was so brilliant. He said that the, you know, the antis are not saying, you know, outlaw abortion in the 24 states that will outlaw abortion if Roe falls. They want abortion outlawed across the country. And his point was the way you do that is fetal personhood. So I do think that's something that we should be very aware of and and um, vigilant. I don't I don't believe that there's a mechanism to do that this um, you know this session for the court. I just have to thank you because a completely different organization that I do technically love had a text campaign going on where you type in your state and I typed in Massachusetts and it was saying, you know, type in your state and find out what you have to do to protect abortion access. And when I typed in Massachusetts, it said, 
you're safe in Massachusetts. And I thought, no, don't, don't send me that message because I don't think we want to have people who are engaged feel like they don't have to do anything because we have to act. And safe isn't good enough, right? Yes, the right to abortion is protected. Yes, we have repealed anti-choice laws. I am deeply proud that we are the first state of the nation to repeal a parental consent law. Um, but that doesn't mean that access is easy for people. It doesn't mean that, you know, there is transit for people who don't have cars that make it easy for them to get to their appointments. Um, it doesn't mean that there aren't financial barriers. You know, it's, it's not good enough to be safe. And I think that's the point of our name. Um, safe isn't enough. We need, we need access and we need to be leading the nation in access. We're going to talk to you in two parts today. So I do think we want to ask a little bit more about the keys that you took away from passing the REL Act, strategies that you think were really effective and that people could use in other states or that we can use to help people in other states by working together with your organization. Yeah, I love this question. There's no one answer. I don't have one silver bullet. Um, I think one is grassroots mobilization. You know, there is nothing like having the legislature bombarded by emails and phone calls. Um, and also asking members to, um, you know, show up at town halls, show up in their office hours. You know, um, state reps and state senators are, at least in my experience, pretty accessible and they want to talk to their constituents. And so often many people are not showing up when they're holding office hours. And so it's an opportunity as an activist to go have a face-to-face -face conversation and ask questions. So I, I, I will, you know, I will herald the power of grassroots activism in moving people. But I also think that legislators are people and they have questions and they're not expert in abortion or reproductive freedom. And I worked very hard and I know our entire coalition, my colleagues at the ACLU and Planned Parenthood as well, worked really, really hard to create space for legislators to ask questions um, and to answer those questions honestly and to um, really remove uh, black and white from the scenario and really sit in the gray with them. So I, I, I can't stress enough how important it is to kind of meet people where they are um, and have what can feel like difficult conversations for them. Um, uh, but, you know, conversations that I, and I think everybody on this podcast feels comfortable with. Um, and I think the other thing is showing up on election day. So when people take votes that we know are good votes that we know resonate with voters, um, they also need to see us show up for them after the vote. They need to see us knocking doors. They need to see us um, you know, volunteering, and they need to see us talking to their friends and, and encouraging people to vote. So I, you know, I, I think that's been very key. I, I will also say, I think we had something of an assist, you know, if there's any silver lining, we had an assist from COVID because our laws demonstrated, our anti-choice laws demonstrated um, the arbitrariness of those laws when we went into lockdown and the disproportionate impact those laws were having on black and brown communities and low-income communities and it was really a, a very tangible way for us to point to um, inequity in healthcare with legislators so i think you know we we really made 
um, lemonade out of lemons when it came to the um, to the pandemic and its impact on on access to care. You have um, answered my second my my next question, which was to be how do we get people to feel brave to take on this journey? And I guess exactly what you've said is show them that it's in little steps. You can start in little steps. You're also right in terms of um, the local level. I am a member of the Billerica Democratic Town Committee. I am the only one who ever talks about reproductive justice. And I, but I, but I'm talking about it and then people do listen. And so you'd be surprised where you can find a soapbox. At least if one person listens, and blocks out the chatter. I mean, that's that's a victory. For me, I felt very, very much the same way you did during the Christine Blasey trial. And now we're on the cusp, we're on the eve of this Supreme Court bomb. And I just, I, I, I don't think that enough people understand that the inability to have autonomy over your own reproductive self leads to poverty. Because if you can't go to college, if you can't hold a job, if you're if you if you're 23 and you've gotten pregnant again and you still can't get to where you want to be or you can't take care of your kids, people just don't understand that it is a this is a real fact of life. Is that is to have, to have that control over when to have or if to have any babies? I. I'm grateful for the work. I'm grateful for the time that we, we, we've gotten to know you and your previous organization and to get out in the street and really fight, uh, fight for Roe. I'm very concerned about the next coming steps because believe me, we may not be hearing it, but the antis are meeting and they are talking about it in Massachusetts and they are thinking about what they can do. And as someone who, from time to time, I don't know why, but I am on Jim Lyons's email newsletter and I am horrified at his comments. And if he has anything to say about legislation coming up or actions, then we've got to, we've got to be, we've got to take him seriously, even if there are only 10 people in the Republican party who like him anymore. Yeah, I mean, look, Mr. Lyons is the head of the Massachusetts GOP. And, you know, we know that he and the current governor do not get along. That doesn't change the fact that he's head of the GOP in Massachusetts. And he uses that platform to spew hate. Um, he, he has been working on um, rolling back the victory of the Roe Act since the day it was passed. And we would be foolish to um, discount him and what he's trying to do. Uh, you know, I, I, that's, I'm not going to allow him to do that on my watch, and I know that nobody on this call is either, but we would be very foolish to underestimate him. It seems like a reasonable time to ask for a quick comment from you about the governor, because Governor Baker, you know, he didn't just veto the Roe Act more than once, but he also vetoed the cap on kids. He has not stepped forward, not just on abortion access, but on related issues that have to do with equity, gender equity, racial equity. He has not been a leader. And I'm curious from where you stand, you work so hard to build coalitions with elected leaders. You know, is there any way to build a coalition with Governor Baker? No. Um, I am. <laughs> uh, right, yeah. 
direct and to the point. I like that. I am I am deeply, deeply disappointed by the governor. Um, you know, look, I, I I appreciate that he signed the access law. I appreciate that he signed the Nasty Woman Act, which repealed our pre-row criminal abortion ban. Those are important. Um, he has failed, his administration has failed to implement the access law. You can't claim credit for a bill and then for, you know, three years fail the, the women and, um, you know, people who can get pregnant in Massachusetts by failing to implement the law. It's not good enough. Um, he, you know, I was, I, I was stunned. I wish I could say I wasn't, but I was truly stunned when he, um, you know, twice vetoed the Roe Act. I thought that he would see the groundswell. I thought that he would see the disproportionate impact of anti-choice laws on communities of color, and he didn't step up. So, you know, no, I don't believe that he is with us in the way that we need him to be with us. Perfectly said, and a perfect pause moment for us. We're going to continue our conversation with you in a part two, because our sleeves are rolled up now, and we are in the thick of it. <laughs> so thanks for being here today, and we will welcome you back with open arms. My pleasure. You've been listening to Red Cloaks Radio, a production of the Boston Red Cloaks. Find us at bostonredcloaks.com 